In 2010, a romantic drama was released starring Julia Roberts. As the synopsis reads, her character had everything a modern woman is supposed to dream of having. A husband, a house, a successful career. Yet like so many others, she found herself lost, confused, and searching for what she really wanted in life. Newly divorced and at a crossroads, she steps out of her comfort zone, risking everything to change her life, embarking on a journey around the world that becomes a quest for self-discovery. In her travels, she discovers the true pleasure of nourishment by eating in Italy, the power of prayer in India, and finally, and unexpectedly, the inner peace and balance of true love in Indonesia. The movie is called Eat, Pray, Love, and it's trash. <laughs> I don't mean that in a filmmaking standpoint. I didn't see it. I could barely make it through the trailer, to be honest. But philosophically, it's garbage that reeks of the culture. Uh, I, could, uh, I could go on, but I'll just say this. The tagline for the movie is, let yourself go. That's all very, very similar to, girl, wash your face. We believe as a society that we have to go on these grand ventures of self-discovery to find out who we really are by eating delicious food, collecting spiritual highs, and finding completion in the arms of another person. Those things sound really exciting, but they are not the path to true satisfaction. Our passage in the book of Ruth tonight shows us how truly satisfied Ruth is and how we may attain such satisfaction for our own lives. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. As we see how Ruth lived out the original eat, pray, love. <laughs> That's our sermon title for tonight. The original Eat, Pray, Love. A better Eat, Pray, Love, if you ask me. Let's look together at Ruth chapter 2, verses 14 through 23. Ruth chapter 2, verses 14 through 23 say this. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, 
The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Let me pray for us. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, would you teach us what it is to be satisfied in this life, in the here and now, God, from your word tonight, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, I want to show you what a satisfied Christian knows. What a satisfied Christian knows from how Ruth experiences satisfaction. So the first thing that a satisfied Christian knows is that meals mean something special because of who they're with. Meals mean something special because of who they're with. Look again at verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed her her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Boaz invited Ruth to sit with him. She took a seat among the reapers, likely creating as much distance as she could with Boaz. Not because she didn't like him or anything like that. It's because it's the humble play here. She could have sat anywhere, and yet she chooses to sit among the reapers, showing humility similar to that of which Jesus taught in Luke chapter 14, verses 10 through 11. Jesus teaches, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Remember who Boaz is. Ruth chapter two, verse one tells us, that Boaz was a worthy man, which is synonymous with saying he was prominent. He was noble, influential, and wealthy. And he invited Ruth, a barren, foreign widow, to sit and eat with him. It's a story that strikes me as very similar to that of Mephibosheth. I don't know if you know Mephibosheth. He's another person in the Bible. Uh, Mephibosheth was a crippled uh, son of Jonathan, uh, who was a son of King Saul. And long after Saul and Jonathan had died and passed away, King David thinks of Mephibosheth specifically thinks of how can I honor my best friend Jonathan who is no longer with me. 
and he decides he's going to do something to treat Mephibosheth. He's going to give him land. Now, Mephibosheth is crippled, so it's land for his servants to work and provide for his estate. But more than that, David invites him to sit at the king's table, as scripture says, like one of the king's sons. And the story of Mephibosheth ends, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now, let me ask you something. Where in the kingdom is the greatest place for a crippled man to sit? Is it not at the table of the most powerful man in the kingdom? What a position to be stuck in (laughs) is forever blessed at the table of the king. Is that not your story and mine? That we were stuck in our sin? And Jesus says, come and dine with me. And here we see Ruth ate with Boaz. One of the most prominent men in Bethlehem. And she ate until she was full. Now, it was roasted grain sour wine, but it was good company. It doesn't have to be a three-course meal. What makes a meal is the right people. The Proverbs warn us of making a mistake of overemphasizing good food above any kind of company. Uh, Proverbs 23, 6 through 8 says, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy, Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Saying that you're going to be so anxious at the dinner table, you're not not going to be able to enjoy it because of this person that you've decided to dine with. Proverbs 17.1 says, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. And then my favorite out of all of these is Proverbs 15.17. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted ox and hatred with it. Better is a meal lacking in substance, but there's love than a meal rich with good meat, and yet you despise the people you're eating with. So who do you dine with? How tense is it when you're with them? Can you enjoy the meal? Are you too busy thinking about how to avoid certain topics of the conversation? Is there any possibility of setting them off? Meals mean something special, because of who they're with. The food does not make or break a meal. The one you share it with does. Anna Hine is my girlfriend, and she is an amazing cook. She has made me realize that I eat like a bum. (laughs) But what's truly special about the meals that we share at her dining room table 
is that we have each other's undivided attention. And what's even better is when we get to invite others in on that. Uh, Mike Cosper says in his book, Recapturing the Wonder, uh, about this. He says, one of the most magical places in the world is the dinner table. It demands our attention in many ways, especially when we share a meal with others. So much culminates at the dinner table, the meal, the relationships of the gathered, and the day itself. In Jewish tradition, the new day is marked by sunset, and dinner has an almost sacramental quality, especially on the Sabbath. It's a time for bonding, for thanksgiving, and for feasting. It's a celebration of all elements, the food, the people, and the time itself. A call to pay attention to each one. Every feast is a feast of attention. So often in this stage of life, we don't eat to be present. We eat to consume. We get more use out of the TV trays than we do the dining room table. And God calls us to so much more. So much more. As we read in our scripture reading of Psalm 107, our hunger and our thirst, they're spiritual. The Lord leads us out of the wilderness to the city, to people, where he will fill us with good things. A satisfied Christian knows that meals mean something special because of who they're with. But also... The satisfied Christian knows that prayer does something special because of who it's to. Prayer does something special because of who it's to. Let's look again at uh, verses 17 through 20. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. That's Think about a giant colossal bag of dog food. That's, that's how much she gleaned that day. Now, to give you an idea, that's a month's worth of work that she's taking home after one day. That's how generous Boaz was. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Ruth and Naomi acquired more than enough barley to meet their needs. In this passage, we see an answer to prayers Naomi prayed a blessing over Ruth and her other daughter-in-law, Orpah, back in Ruth chapter 1, verse 8. She said, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Now, you may wonder, does that even count? Like, is that even a prayer? Like, it's so small. Like, it, it, there's no substance to it. It sounds like something you'd find in the inside of a Hallmark card, uh, you know, 
over the place that you put your name. Does that even count? Is this the prayer God hears and answers? I think it is. We see Naomi pray a blessing for Boaz in this passage, don't we? And we'll see that God goes on to answer that as well. Here's the thing. I think we have so built up prayer in our minds that prayer has become the task we can never seem to complete. Like the load of laundry that's in the chair in our bedroom or the dishes loading up in the sink. Our silence has just grown until we get a day off to concentrate and then it's not even that good. So if I can submit a warning to you as a pastor, it'd be we have built up prayer in our minds to the point that we don't do it. We don't talk to God. We don't ask him to bless others. We don't recognize his handiwork in our lives unless it is convenient for us. And hey, newsflash, it's not. I know we say pray big prayers, and I know what we mean by that. We mean pray God-sized prayers, prayers that only God can do and get the credit for. Yes and amen. But let's make prayer small again. Let's make it light. Let's make it portable to where we actually do it. So one practice that has helped me out tremendously lately is the practice uh, known as breath prayers breath prayers. Uh, They are prayers, literally, that can be said in a single breath. Um, We just practiced that before our service tonight. Mike Cosper writes about this as well. He says, you simply take a deep, calming breath, and while exhaling, pray quietly or aloud a simple phrase meant to reorient you to God's presence, his kingdom, and his goodwill for your life. It's a practice that brings the whole person, heart, mind, and body back to an awareness of God's presence. There is no place, no meeting, no encounter in life where you can't stop and take a slow, deep breath. Do you see how practical that is? Anywhere, anytime, one breath, Think of whatever verse comes to your mind that you need. Turn it into a quick prayer. You do that enough times throughout the day, and you start to see this relationship with the Lord that you haven't tapped into in a while. And it's going to strengthen you. It's going to empower you to get through the day in a new way, one that's from a place of abundance and spirituality as you're tapped into the power that's accessible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a way to live. Alongside breath prayers, I would suggest praying blessings over people. Uh, We see how it is highlighted in the story of Ruth with both Boaz and Naomi. If you were in our ministry during COVID, right at the beginning when we were all kind of in quarantine, uh, you likely uh, got a call from me at some point asking how I could be praying for you. And if we actually got to talk on the phone, you heard me pray Aaron's blessing over you that I would ask the Lord, would you bless them and keep them, make them make your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them in the days ahead. And I didn't just say that because it sounded cool. 
I said it because I meant it. And I'm asking God to truly bless you in the midst of crisis, in the midst of trauma. I prayed that over you because I cared. And that blessing has a history with God's people. I mean those words as I pray them over you. And then at the end of YA worship each week, you hear me give the benediction as we close out in announcements. I say, go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's me both speaking a blessing over you and praying for you as you head into the second half of your week that you would do so to the glory of God, walking in the abundance of life that Jesus Christ has purchased for you to live. So then when I check in with you later and see how it's going and you say, it's going really well, I praise the Lord. I praise the Lord for that because that's answered prayer. Not only does God answer Naomi's breath prayer, he answers Boaz's prayer for Ruth as well. He prayed in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Notice who these prayers for blessing are addressed to. It's the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they are spoken by God's covenant people to the one who obliged himself to incline his ear to hear with the intent on blessing. He inclined his ear to hear with the intent of blessing. Now, let me just say, God doesn't do that for all people. And that may shake you up a bit. He does that for his covenant people. So, begs the question, does God hear the prayers of unbelieving people? Now, there is a sense in which he hears Every word ever spoken and ever will be spoken, whether it's in somebody's mind or on somebody's lips, but that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. Is there any reason for God to dispose himself to answer prayer apart from Jesus Christ? I have to say no. The answer is no. The only way God hears our prayers with an intent to bless is through the blood-bought sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Anyone who comes to God in prayer apart from Jesus comes in their own righteousness, and that is an abomination before a holy God. Two important takeaways with this truth. One, we see right away why intercession is so important. That if we truly love the people we do life with, and they do not know the Lord, that we would, with urgency, take their request to a God who can do something about it. That we would earnestly pray for them to be saved. I mean, we see Boaz and Naomi pray for Ruth, the Moabite. Yes, she has committed herself to Yahweh, but she is new at this whole relationship with the God of the universe thing. 
Another important takeaway, we see that the most important prayer a person can offer to God is the prayer for salvation. Because that is the first prayer that God hears with the intent to bless. Hear me on this. God is always prepared to honor his son, Jesus, by answering someone's prayer to call on him as Lord and Savior of, his life, of their life. Always, 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 God is delighted to answer that prayer. Always, 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 always. If you would plead with the God of the universe, Lord, save me from my sin through the blood of Jesus Christ, always delighted to answer that prayer. God heard the prayers of Naomi and Boaz with an intent to bless. We will see that God eventually answers Naomi's prayer for Ruth back in Ruth chapter 1, verse 9 as well. She says, The Lord, Yahweh, grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. God is going to answer that prayer for Ruth with Boaz. Let's look at verses 20 through 23. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and harvest, wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. A satisfied Christian knows love hopes for someone special because of what it is. Love hopes for someone special because of what love is. This final part of the passage is pregnant with romantic wonder. <laughs> Whose field did you say? You know who he is, right? Okay, God, I see you. I see you. Okay. It's definitely on Naomi's mind, which is why she brings up Boaz being the kinsman redeemer. Now, the redeemer, uh, kinsman redeemer, was a near relative to whom both uh, law and custom gave certain duties toward one's family. One of those, for instance, was if a relative fell into debt and had to sell himself into slavery, the kinsman redeemer was obliged to buy him back. Another example is in Leviticus 25, 25. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. That's to keep the property in the family. But under other circumstances, the kinsman redeemer also had an obligation to marry his deceased relative's widow, and raise up children to continue his lineage. So you see how Naomi's up to something. If we take a peek at the beginning of chapter 3, we see what Naomi's thinking. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative? Ladies, how often have you gotten that from your mom? What about that Boaz fellow? He's a nice young man. But what did Ruth think about all this? That's, that's the question buzzing around my head. What did Ruth think about all this? 
Well, we don't know. But we do see that she is obedient to her mother-in-law and staying in Boaz's field. Ruth doesn't seem to be like one to just use the guy. She's genuinely attracted to his kindness and she appreciates his attention. Naomi saw it. We see it. And the author of the book of Ruth signals it with the last little bit in this chapter. And she lived with her mother-in-law. She lived with her mother-in-law. I don't know if it left Ruth wanting more, but it definitely leaves us, the audience, wanting more for her, doesn't it? How much more could Ruth, a barren widow, long for the attention and the affection of a kind, noble man of God. So she waited. And while she waited, she worked. And she lived with her mother-in-law, caring for her needs. Hear me on this. Ladies, while you're waiting, nothing about that says complacent. If anything, it says compassionate actively compassionate towards others. Maybe she didn't love Boaz just yet. We don't know. But at the very least, we can say she's hopeful. If you were here last week, you heard Chad read our scripture reading, 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 7 says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love trusts. Love, trust. If we love God, we trust him. If we love our significant other, we trust them. Until we have a significant other, we love God by hoping for someone special. And we do this because of the commitment that love is. Remember, commitment. Love is a commitment, not a feeling. Our commitment to God strengthens our future commitment that we will one day make, Lord willing, to a spouse. We can hope for someone truly worth committing ourselves to. That's a good hope. That you actually love God and hoping well. That is love. Now men, you initiate in this process, and we talked about that last week. So I want to speak to our ladies on what it could look like to wait well, during this season of waiting, you will likely receive some special attention from guys. And I think that you should entertain that special attention up to a point. That if it ever becomes the case that you no longer want that attention and you cannot see yourself committing to that man, you should let him know. You should let him know. In fact, the most loving thing you can do for someone that you're not interested in romantically is to let them know you're not interested. If you can tell they're putting off that vibe, you're reading that, you're interpreting that, and it's truthful and honest, the most loving thing you can do if you're not interested in that person romantically is let them know. You will save that person a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy, and most of all, a lot of heartbreak. 
if you just break it to him gently early on. If he's just kind of lingering around you and never really asking you out, I'd say just be bold and confront him. And the way you do that is with a statement and a question. You say, I notice you've been giving me a lot of special attention. Is there any particular reason for that? I notice you've been giving me a lot of special attention. Is there any particular reason for that? You don't have to be mean. You don't have to hurt the person. You just say, I, this is what I noticed. I'm asking you a question. And what you're going to do is that's going to, that's going to push that person to either ask you out or leave you alone. Either ask you out and leave you alone. Now, I don't say this. I don't give this to you to embarrass anybody. So please hear my heart on this. The reason I give you this is because we need to do well in this in communicating so we're not frustrated. But if I want to see our ministry flourish as young adults, then we have to look at doing things like this. You don't have to do it this way, but you got to communicate. Otherwise, it's going to lead to a lot of frustration. And this ministry would lose people for the wrong reason. Do you hear me? I really hope you hear my heart on that. Bottom line, Christians should be the most satisfied people on the planet. God's people should experience satisfaction that just completely confounds the world. That we show the world that you don't have to travel off into the world to find true satisfaction or to discover yourself. No, you can eat, pray, love to the glory of God right where you are. So the main point for tonight is that we would eat with friends, pray to God, and love selflessly. And you will be satisfied in this life. Eat with friends, pray to God, love selflessly and you will be satisfied in this life. Jesus modeled this to perfection. Did he not dine with sinners and tax collectors? Did he not pray to his Father in heaven continually? Did he not love selflessly by laying down his life for you and for me on the cross, purchasing us a place at the table. That we would banquet with him in the great banquet in the heavens without, without number. The great multitude gathers at the table together to eat with friends, to enjoy full relationship with our God and love him eternally. That we would experience eternal satisfaction that we get to tap into here on this earth. Jesus is the most satisfied human being that has ever lived, and he calls us into that satisfaction. 
He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. He fills with good.